You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is Episode 6, Esoteric Nazism Reexamined Part 1, or Agent Hitler, FBI. A few days before the liberation of Munich by the Freikorps, the communists raided the hotel headquarters of the Thule Society and took seven members hostage. On May 1st, 1919, as the communist Freikorps units tightened the ring around the city, the hostages were stood up against the wall in the courtyard of the Luitpold High School and shot. Of the seven Thule members killed, four were titled aristocrats, including the secretary of the society, Countess Hila von Westarp, and Prince Gustav von Thurnd und Taxis, who was related to several European royal families. Not only Germany, but the entire world was shocked by the murders of such respectable people. The London Times headline read, Shooting of Hostages, Savagery in Munich. Everyone in Munich was now aware of the Thule Society's existence and that it had some very important members. Surprisingly few people, at least in the United States, know about the unsuccessful German Revolution that took place in 1918 to 1919 and extending into 1920. There was a serious possibility that Germany could have gone red like Russia. In the wake of World War I, there were widespread riots and civil unrest that led Kaiser Wilhelm to flee and abdicate. To summarize something massively complicated in like 20 seconds, the revolutionaries rose up, erected barricades, and tried to set up Soviet-style workers' councils to take power. The Social Democratic Party of Germany, the SPD, generally opposed this and wanted a national assembly. Trying to avoid a full-on civil war, the SPD backed down from class war and let the Freikorps put down the communists. For Bernie bros and terminally online leftists, this is, of course, the origin of that meme, Bernie killed Rosa Luxemburg, because the SPD allowed the Freikorps to extrajudicially murder Rosa Luxemburg. Still, despite the brutalities of the Freikorps, the German Communist Party, the KPD, was a popular mass party that performed better and better with each passing year. By 1932, they had a formal membership of 360,000 people. It was viewed by many in Germany as a serious electoral threat. And among the communists, it was one of the strongest parties in Europe. To put it into context, in the July 1932 German federal election, The Nazi party won almost 14 million votes, while the Social Democrats won 8 million, and the Communist Party won over 5 million. The Communist Party stood a real chance to come to power through parliamentary means, and it could have theoretically taken to the streets like in 1919. A general strike and insurrection could have swept the Reds into power. This kept Germany's ruling elite up at night. The point of all this is to emphasize that there was a real possibility of Germany going red, either in 1918 or at certain points in the 1920s and 1930s. If you look at all the factors, there was the punishing Versailles Treaty, and of course Germany was already economically in shambles before going into the Great Depression. All of this is important to keep in mind when we talk about Adolf Hitler as an undercover intelligence agent, police asset, and perhaps you could even call him a psychological operation. So, when I say... Adolf Hitler was an intelligence agent, police snitch, and an op, and that he was propped up by the German military to keep the country from going red. 
What exactly do I mean? I'm really making two statements. The first half no historian really disagrees with, that he was an intelligence agent. The second statement, that he was a police snitch, an op, and that he was propped up by the German military to keep the country from going red, is perhaps more subjective and complicated, but I would contend that it is not necessarily unsupported by the facts, even if not every historian draws the same conclusions that I do. But what I argue is precisely that. Hitler was a spy, he was a police snitch, and he was an op. Much like Richard Aoki, Ward Churchill, Ron Karenga, General Field Marshal Sinkyu, or, you know, take your pick. I would contend that Hitler was more of an op than people realize. He might, in fact, be the most spectacular instance of blowback of a counterintelligence operation of all time. Or perhaps you could argue that the German military got exactly what they wanted. I realize that this might not be very clear up front, but we'll get into it, and I will explain. Also a note on my part, I know we're jumping around a bit. I really should have put this episode after the Passevalk episode, because we're going to be picking up the trail of Hitler's activities immediately after being released from Passevalk. So, the majority of soldiers who came down with cases of hysteria never returned to the battlefield. If they recovered at all, which was not always the case, they were generally not fit to be soldiers in any capacity. And of course, many did not recover. Hitler did recover and stayed in the army, making him something of an outlier. They didn't send him back to the front, however. He was sent to be a prison guard at Tronstein until the camp dissolved in January of 1919. Having no trade or education or skills, Hitler opted to stay in the army and was sent to barracks in Munich. At this time, Munich was in absolute chaos. It was ruled by what was nominally called the People's State of Bavaria, which was a short-lived socialist state that existed in a period of chaos from November 1918 to April 1919. From April to May of 1919, it was known as the Bavarian Soviet Republic. During this time, there was a mass social upheaval, including riots and assassinations. Berlin eventually sent the Freikorps to restore order. The communists called them the White Guards of Capitalism. The Freikorps, of course, were paramilitary groups. The name had been used to denote paramilitary groups before, uh, and sometimes mercenary groups as well. But specific to the aftermath of World War I, the Freikorps were used to put down social unrest, mostly left-wing. Much of the Freikorps went on to form the nucleus of what became the Nazi party. As a general rule, the Freikorps disliked the Weimar Republic. Hitler was stationed at the infantry's Maximilian II barracks when Freikorps troops arrived. A group of soldiers, including Hitler, were marched at gunpoint into the cellars of the Max Gymnasium, which was turned into a makeshift prison. On the first day of imprisonment, one in ten of his companions were lined up against the wall and shot. Hitler was in serious danger of being shot to death at this moment, when an officer who knew him from the front recognized him and secured his release. The Freikorps, of course, were busy putting down what they perceived to be insurrections in the army. After having averted a possible execution, Hitler was then elected liaison of his military battalion, and he was instrumental in convincing them not to take sides in the conflict, 
waiting for order to be restored, rather than joining and assisting the people state of Bavaria or putting it down. That, of course, is not to say that Hitler was neutral. In the aftermath of arrests and executions, Hitler denounced fellow liaison, George Dufter, as a Soviet rabble-rouser, and testified to the military board of inquiry, which helped them root out other members of the military that had been, quote, infected with revolutionary fervor. For this snitching, he was allowed to stay in the military and was not discharged when his unit was disbanded in May of 1919. What was Hitler's job in the military after mass demobilization? Karl Mayer, the head of the intelligence department, recruited Hitler as an undercover agent in early June of 1919. As I speculated in episode 4, Hitler was probably recruited for several reasons, not least of which because he had had a psychosomatic illness, and it can be helpful to recruit agents that you can control with shameful secrets like that. And for the record, I don't think it's shameful to have suffered from hysteria under the conditions of World War I. I'm just saying that Hitler would have considered it shameful. Under Captain Mayer, national thinking courses were arranged near Augsburg, and Hitler attended them from the 10th to the 19th of July. In these courses, Hitler so impressed Mayer that Mayer assigned him to an anti-Bolshevik educational commando as one of 26 instructors in the summer of 1919. In July 1919, Hitler was formally appointed intelligence agent of a reconnaissance unit of the Reichswehr. So what was Hitler's next assignment? On the 12th of September 1919, Hitler was instructed to attend a meeting of a small political party which had been formed in 1918 called the German Socialist Workers' Party. Supposedly, Hitler's job was to prepare a report on their aims so the authorities could decide if they posed any threat. The party met in the halls of Sternickersbrau, which was a small, shabby beer hall, which later became a Nazi shrine. Now, the idea that he was sent to spy on the German Socialist Workers' Party to see if they were a threat is misleading. There are probably several reasons why Hitler was sent to spy on the group. The Reichswehr said that the group seemed to be well-intentioned. They sent Hitler to spy on the group because they were worried about Bavarian separatism, which was a thriving center and right-wing threat to Germany. Hitler detested the concept of Bavarian separatism and argued and debated and gave a speech against a professor named Baumann who was advocating Bavaria separating from Germany at that first meeting Hitler attended. Apparently, Hitler was eloquent and forceful because he caught the eye of Anton Drexler, who ran after Hitler to catch up with him. Drexler handed Hitler a pamphlet called My Political Awakening, which outlined some of the German Socialist Worker Party ideas. Hitler read the pamphlet and agreed with it. A few months before meeting Hitler, Drexler had expressed the hope that someone would turn up with go and grit in him, who could make something out of us, and contrive a real driving force behind us. It would need to be an outstanding personality, and who could even attempt to do such a thing? A man of intense conviction, single-eyed and absolutely fearless. A genius such as we need only turns up once a century. Of course, it's also of note that Hitler went from having no leadership potential 
as Wiedemann testified, seeing him perform in World War I, to just steamrolling the German Socialist Workers' Party with his overflowing natural charisma. If you haven't listened to episode 4, I explain how Hitler made such a leap in such a short period of time. Hitler applied to join the party and was admitted on the 16th of September 1919, joining the group almost immediately. That brings us to another aspect of this whole thing. Hitler wasn't just spying on them to watch out for Bavarian separatism, because there was another faction in the mix. Remember that incident at the beginning of the episode, when the communists executed seven Thule members? The press started calling it the Blood Gymnasium. Well, the German Socialist Workers' Party was formed by the members of the Thule Society. And this is another reason why Hitler joined them out of all the other nationalist groupuscules that existed at the time. Although Hitler's participation in the Thule Society cannot be verified, and there is no record of him referring directly to Thule, Hitler did try to establish a relationship with one of Thule's front organizations, the Muchner Beobachter, by offering to become a correspondent for them in the summer of 1919. Also, Rudolf Freer von Sebotendorf, the founder of the Thule Society, stated that Hitler joined the society in 1919, although it is not clear if that is actually true. We'll probably talk about the Thule Society, whose original name was the Study Group for Germanic Antiquity, in their own episode one day. But essentially, they were an occultist and Volkish group that held very strange esoteric beliefs. Many of those beliefs ended up being codified in Nazi practice and law, and the majority of Thule members ended up joining the Nazi party. I have a quote here that reads, The ostensible objective of the Thule Society was the establishment of a pan-Germanic state of unsurpassed power and grandeur. There were also mystical aspects to the association involving bardic ritual and occult ceremonies. On the practical political level, the society espoused German racial superiority, anti-Semitism, and violent anti-communism. So in short, basically all the things that the Nazis would become known for. Although we'll probably go into von Sebotendorf in more depth, here's a little taste of this guy. He was an occultist, an author, an intelligence agent, a political agent, founder of the Thule Society, a Freemason with Rosicrucian interests, a convert to Islam, a Sufi of the Bektashi order, an early practitioner of astrology, meditation, numerology, alchemy, and he had ties to the Young Turks and the fledgling fascist group, the Grey Wolves. Also, Hitler's own account of this time period is murky at best. I mean, would it surprise you to find out that Hitler actually lies in Mein Kampf? For instance, Hitler states that he had no previous knowledge of the German Workers' Party before receiving orders to report on it, but that doesn't match the fact that Hitler did seem to know about it, given his assignment to make contact with and possibly join the Thule Society and its other front groups. Here's a quote from the book Hammer of the Gods about this time period for Hitler. Inconsistencies riddle Hitler's story. Although the German Workers' Party and its predecessor sometimes gathered in the back rooms of small taverns, it also met regularly at Thule's offices at Four Seasons, where the Reichswehr's district commander, Ritter von Epp, 
had his quarters. The idea of the district commander spying on its commander's neighbor down the hall is the stuff of comedy. Another difficulty is presented by Hitler's admission that Fedder was the meeting speaker. Hitler and his superiors were already quite familiar with the man. Fedder was an associate of Thule, and since the November Revolution, he had frequently expounded his ideas on economics at the society's offices. One may wonder why a district commander would order Hitler to spy on a group being addressed by one of its own minions. On the night of Hitler's first meeting of the Workers' Party, Fetter spoke on how and by what means is capitalism to be eliminated. He had been substituted by the party for the originally scheduled speaker, the Tulist poet Dietrich Eckhart. The disingenuousness of the Mein Kampf account is demonstrated by a letter on September 1st, 1919 from Captain Karl Mayer, the officer who sent Hitler to report on the meeting, to Eckert, ordering subscriptions for his men to Eckert's newspaper, Auf Gut Deutsch. By enrolling his men as Eckert subscribers, Mayer demonstrated the collusion prevailing between Tulists and Bavaria's military commanders. Evidence exists of an ongoing line of contact between Mayer and the Workers' Party. In December 1919, after Hitler had joined the party, Mayer arranged for the disbursement of army funds to provide the growing organization with its own office in the Sternecker Beer Hall, and for the June 1920 publication of a party brochure, which attacked the Versailles Treaty, by the Thule Confederate Julius Lehmann. He would later claim that his office underwrote the party's earliest mass meetings. Even if von Sebotendorf lied by naming Hitler as a Thule guest, Hitler had already traveled in circles defined by the Thule Society before he attended his first meeting of the German Workers' Party. So, basically, Hitler wasn't just sent to spy on the Workers' Party, although he was, of course, doing that. What else was Hitler up to? Hitler was not engaging in politics merely for his own satisfaction. He was participating with the consent and by the orders of his superiors at the Army District Headquarters. He was still on the full-time payroll of Reichswehr as a political agent. The army was looking for a mass political party on which it could rely as a patriotic alternative to communism. This is where we start to enter very interesting territory, since Hitler seemed to have been given a broader mission than was initially suspected. On March 13, 1920, extreme reactionary circles in Berlin attempted a coup. Although named after a little-known Prussian civil servant, Wolfgang Kopp, the real player was the leader of the Erhardt Brigade, Hermann Erhardt, who forced the president of Germany, SPD leader Friedrich Ebert, and his cabinet to flee to Dresden. The coup had almost no support except for the extreme right wing of the Nationalist Party. It didn't even have the support of the German upper class, or the industrialists, or the high command of the army. The Social Democratic Party then called a general strike. Thanks to the bumblings of Kopp and Erhardt, the rebel regime began to collapse. Although, of course, this general strike also ended up triggering the Ruhr Uprising, aka the March Uprising, which we talked about in episode 3, when John Foster Dulles witnessed the brief revolutionary government of the people. What did Hitler have to do with the Kopp Push? Quite a bit, actually. While the Kopp Push was popping off, the Bavarian separatists thought they might try to pull a fast one, so the conservatives who supported the Wittelsbach monarchy presented the social democratic government an ultimatum to resign peacefully or be suppressed. 
The new government would be headed by a reactionary monarchist. The Bavarians didn't want to unite forces with Berlin's new temporary cop regime. The Bavarians didn't want to unite forces with Berlin's cop government, but they wanted to send a liaison officer to Berlin to keep in touch with the new regime. Who did they send? Why, Adolf Hitler, along with Dietrich Eckhart, who was one of the founders of the Nazi party. Theoretically, Hitler and Eckert could have been arrested and shot if they were caught carrying out this mission, as they were basically helping one set of rebels stay in contact with another different set of rebels. Eckert's cover story was that he was a paper merchant. Hitler's was that he was Eckert's accountant. Hitler even put on a fake goatee for the mission. Although the liaison mission was a failure, as both the Kapusch and the Bavarian governments fell, the trip gave Hitler many key contacts with the far right. He first made contact with North German right-wing circles that already had access to financial support from major industrialists. He met Freikorps leaders like the Stahlheim, a reactionary veterans association supported by the Junkers, who were Prussian landed aristocrats. And most importantly, he met General Ludendorff, who was the second highest ranking German general in World War I and was a key player in the messy, complicated nationalist networks. Eckert presented Hitler to Berlin society for the first time, notably Frau Helen Beckstein, the wife of the piano maker Karl Beckstein, who seemed to love Hitler. She was really taken with him. So what should we make of this mission? Hitler was literally sent into the German Workers' Party in order to monitor and probably undermine Bavarian separatism. And what better way to do that than to be well-placed as a liaison between the fledgling Kapp government and the would-be Bavarian monarchist government. It is unlikely that Hitler would have assisted the Bavarians in their separatism, but he would have been more sympathetic to the Kapp government were it to have succeeded. As always, it is hard to know the true motives of a spy in the field at any given time. In fact, it is not clear whether Hitler was supposed to be aiding the Bavarian separatists under German army orders or undermining their efforts under German naval orders. Either way, Hitler was well positioned to spy for the German military. Hitler got back to Munich on March 31st, 1920, and that is when he left army service, at least officially. On paper, Hitler's first year of politics was subsidized by his army salary, and not just that, he was literally an army representative working under orders from his commanders. As the book Who Financed Hitler says, simply because he quit being a soldier does not indicate that any break took place with his former employer. Finally, we're going to talk about a final incident in Hitler's career as a police snitch, and I consider it the clearest example of him acting as such, and it took place three years after he quit the army. Early in 1923, Hitler was contacted by a certain Herr Schaefer, who offered to sell him an arsenal of weapons. Hitler thought the moment opportune for such a deal, so a meeting was arranged to take place in the town of Dachau, outside Munich. Hermann Göring accompanied Hitler to the rendezvous. At first they thought they had fallen into a bandit's lair. Armed men asked them for a password, and then led them into the presence of a woman with a short mannish haircut. She was Schaefer's wife. She was surrounded by a group of men who seemed to be mostly criminal types. Hitler later remarked that they all had the faces of gallows birds. The bargaining began. Hitler warned Frau Schaefer that he wouldn't hand any money over to her until the weapons were in his possession. Finally, an agreement was reached. 
Then Hitler and Göring were taken to a deserted military airfield at Schleisheim, where the weapons were stored. There were thousands of rifles, 17 pieces of, of light field artillery of various calibers, and other assorted equipment like mess tins and haversacks. Hitler said that after all had been put into working order, there would be enough to equip a regiment. As soon as the payment was made, the Nazis began to cart away the arms. Then Hitler went to see General von Lassau, the commander-in-chief of the army in Bavaria, and turned the entire stockpile of weapons over to him. He asked the general to take care of the weapons and promised that the Nazis would make no use of them except in the event of a showdown with communism. It was thus solemnly agreed, said Hitler, that the material would remain in the hands of the Reichswehr as long as this eventuality did not arise. So, there's a lot going on with this story. It's not really clearly stated who Herr Schaefer was, where he got the weapons cache, or what his organization was, but Hitler is implying that they were black market criminals. On top of that, there's an added level of secrecy because Germany had restrictions about remilitarizing due to the Versailles Treaty. The Germans were flouting those rules, but they were secretive about it, and Hitler appears to be acting as an agent in that capacity. We're going to get into Nazi funding soon, but the Nazi party did not have the funds to spare to participate in covert arms deals on their own, and they certainly did not have enough money to buy weapons and just hand them over to the authorities. Finally, Hitler and the Nazis did not keep the weapons, but turned them over immediately to the German army. This whole story reeks of undercover police work, because the Nazis were definitely too broke to buy the weapons in the first place, and if they did buy the weapons, they would not have handed them over to the German army without remuneration for some nebulous point about patriotic duty. Would it surprise you that Hitler does not talk about this incident in Mein Kampf? It's probably too hard to explain the incident as something other than what it was, which is Hitler acting as an asset for the German army undercover. The details from the arms plot, however, come from a book called Hitler's Table Talk, which covered private conversations Hitler had with various people, mainly as recorded by Martin Bormann, Hitler's personal secretary. That story came from a conversation with Himmler taking place in 1942. In the same conversation, Hitler also talked about receiving arms under circumstances mysterious even to him. Quote, I got my hands on the second parcel in particularly comic circumstances. Someone had mysteriously rung me on the telephone to ask me to take possession of the crates. I didn't waste time in having the whole bill of fare read out to me to tell me what it was all about. I thought to myself that there were crates going for the asking, and I told myself that it was at least worth the trouble to find out. I arrived at this warehouse, which was in the Landsbergstrasse, and sure enough, I found 48 crates which had been deposited there in my name. The warehouse owner told me that they contained arms, and that it was impossible for him to keep them any longer for there were numerous communists among his workers. He begged for me to have the crates removed as soon as possible. There were arms practically everywhere in those days. In monasteries, on farms, amongst, amongst groups of civic guards, it was to the citizens' credit that they had thus assembled arms that had been thrown away by soldiers returning, demoralized from the front, and that others had pillaged at the depots." Unquote. So, what are we to make of all this? 
Here we have Hitler, who we know had a psychosomatic illness and was cured with hypnosis, and we have him snitching on his comrades in the army. It's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Hitler acted as an intelligence agent, spy, and police snitch, and yet those facts are curiously not emphasized when mainstream history and normies talk about the early days of the Nazi party. What I suggest to you today is that these aspects of Hitler, which are completely proven by the historical record, are not emphasized in mainstream history because they point the finger too much at current intelligence agency and police practices. Just as no one wants you, the average history enthusiast, to know very much about who funded the rise of the Nazi party. What's the main warning that we always hear about the rise of the Nazis? It's always, beware of the demagogue, beware of mass movements, beware of populists. It's never beware of intelligence agency plants and undercover agents, but that is precisely the bigger threat to democracy. Additionally, the Nazi party itself was an attempt by the German army to find an alternative to Marxism for mass politics. Why was this allowed by the SPD? Why did the Social Democratic Party allow this? There's a passage from the book Who Financed Hitler, which explains why the Social Democrats probably allowed the Nazis to grow. And I read it. And so a struggle developed for influence over Adolf Hitler and his rapidly growing movement. On one side were the Bavarian conservatives and the Bavarian army, represented by men like von Kahr and General von Lossow, who made little effort to conceal their separatist statements. They hoped to be able to use the anti-communist Hitler movement against the Marxist Social Democrats in Berlin when Bavaria made her move for independence. On the other side was the Nationalist Thule Society, linked closely to the German Navy and to the central government in Berlin, which was determined to keep Bavaria in the Reich at all costs. This might explain why the German government did not suppress the Nazi party. Movements that were ideologically nationalist like Hitler's and the Freikorps Oberland, both financed by the Thule Society, could pose a continual threat to Bavarian separatist ambitions. Perhaps it is not too Machiavellian to think that the moderate social democrats would cooperate with men who were their political enemies when the survival of Germany was at stake. Unquote. So we see why the social democrats might have allowed the Nazi party to grow, in order to keep Bavaria in Germany. So here's a question worth thinking about. At what point exactly does Hitler stop being a spy, snitch, and an op? Well, isn't that the million dollar question? I'm not sure if anyone has the answer, but if there's one thing that I truly deeply believe, it's that if you follow the money, you can find the answers as much as anyone could possibly have the answers anyway. And that's why we're going to look at Nazi funding in the next episodes. Now, for sources, I used several books for this episode, namely the truly exquisite book Who Financed Hitler by James and Suzanne Poole. I highly recommend it if you want to get into the weeds on this stuff beyond what I'm covering today. I also pulled from a book called The Hammer of the Gods by David Lurson, which covers the Thule Society, as well as Hitler's Table Talk, 1941 to 1944. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. Let them know it's out there. I need to get moving. I'm on my way to the Four Seasons Hotel in Munich. I heard it's very nice this time of year. Thank you, and God bless. God bless.